You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors 73. And today our guest is Killian Murphy. And I talk with Killian about using artificial intelligence, machine learning, to model the ecosystems and model rewilding. So essentially to use computer model to see how the rewilding will look like and how the animals will behave before we put them onto the landscape. And if you follow me on social media, especially on Twitter, at Outdoors Podcast, follow, give me a follow if you, if you haven't already. Uh, this is something I talk about uh, a lot recently. So this podcast is very timely. Um, it was recorded over Zoom, so if you're listening to audio-only version of this podcast, you may hear like awkward pauses from time to time because of the varying internet speeds and, and so on. Uh, but you can always head on to YouTube and watch that podcast and watch us talking as well on YouTube. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Killian Murphy and Quantitative Ecology. Okay, Killian, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Right. Um, look, I look at your at your uh, Twitter uh, profile, and I was like, "Whoa!" Like you're 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 actually studying deer management, and you're into martial arts, and you're working with artificial intelligence. So it's like, well, I you know I can see there's a lot of common ground here because like for my day job, I'm working with artificial intelligence as well. And I have a past in martial arts, uh, and obviously we're here yeah, to talk definitely. about uh, uh, you know uh, outdoor stuff like deer management and and, and so on. So um, maybe maybe uh, you know the best thing if you can introduce yourself or, uh, to our listeners, what you do, uh, and and how it how it happened that you do what you do. Is it was, was it something that you always wanted to to do? No, I kind of fell into it. Um, on a series of unfortunate events. Well, not really unfortunate, but it kind of was a, a long road to get there. Um, my granddad is a forester down in West Cork, mm-hmm. and he used to take us out to a place called Glengariff. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to have these nature tables in primary school, and all the kids would be bringing in like an oak tree leaf, and we'd be bringing in a full set of antlers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of got the nature connection early. I wanted to be working with wildlife, I wanted to be working outdoors. And uh, yeah, my dad is in computer programming and he said, you'll never make any money if you don't work in computer programming. So that was kind of drilled oh. into us as kids. So that, that, uh, that my mom said That unexpected for the forester. <laughs> I know, yeah. No, my, my granddad's the forester, my dad's the computer programmer. Oh, okay, the granddad. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Both ends of the spectrum. Right. And uh, my mom said, do whatever you want, but be the best at it. And then you'll never have to worry about money. Uh-huh. Which is good advice. This is good advice. Um, so then was going through leaving service and doing work experience and I decided I'll do veterinary because that seemed to be a good way to work with animals and mm-hmm. stay connected to the outdoors. And I did a week's work experience then in, I won't name the veterinary clinic, but a veterinary clinic in Mead. Mm-hmm. 
And I was given charge of two German shepherds who had been brought in who were abandoned. And after four days, mm-hmm. I came in. Everyone's going great. I was taking for little walks every day and things were going great. Mm-hmm. On the fourth day I walked in, they'd bled out overnight. Jeez. <laughs> and uh, I walked in and they handed me, the guy who was removing the dog, handed me a plastic bag with a frozen dog in it. And that kind of shook me. I was like, oh, Jesus. Um, so I walked around the back. And as I was walking around the back, a dog had been hit by a car outside. And its brain was hanging out and they were bringing him in. So I walked out and I walked home and I was like, right, veterinary is not for me either. So What's then I went. What happened to those dogs? Why did they bled out? Oh, they were just horribly malnutrition or malnourished and dehydrated. Oh. And they were hanging out bread all week. But I was kind of like naively saving them in my head by taking them for little walks every day and giving them water. Gotcha. Um, then I went 360 and I decided I was going to do like writing or law. Um, yeah. And then I did law work experience and I was bored of it. So I decided to put down science because I thought it was like a nice, like basic background. In Trinity, I mean, you should go in early and you can try everything and then you kind of refine as you go along. Um, but I knew I wanted to do like zoology, environmental side of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I went in, kind of got through the first few years because I, I didn't do any science subjects in school, just mm-hmm. geography and ag science. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got to my final year and in... Second year, I read this book by Sean Ellis called The Man Who Lives at Wolves. Mm-hmm. And looking back as a, like, with a scientific mind, it's pretty shocking. But back then, I was pretty green. And it was, uh, it was fascinating. Like, he basically goes off into the, where is he? It's Montana or something like that. Uh, Idaho. He goes off into the Idaho wilderness. Mm-hmm. And he's a wolf trainer, wolf handler. And he decides to do this little experiment. And he goes off into the Idaho wilderness and integrates with a wolf pack. Mm-hmm. and everything you learn about predators when you're younger is that they're dangerous and they'll eat you and if you talk to an adult in Dublin City at the moment and you say oh if you bring back wolves to Ireland which I'm sure we might talk about in this episode and mm-hmm. um, they'll say oh sure wolves will be dangerous and they eat the children and they break into our homes at night like <laughs> so I was getting this brand new perspective on predators and ecology and I was like this is fascinating mm-hmm. then my whole perspective changed and I decided I was going to go track wolves in the Idaho wilderness that was my new uh, obsession. So yeah. I had a project plan on uh, reintroducing wolves to Ireland for my final year thesis. Mm-hmm. I slapped it on the desk and uh, there was a professor in Trinity called John Rochford. And he used to entertain my ideas by bouncing back and forth forever. Mm-hmm. And I slapped this project proposal down. I was like, I'm going to Idaho. I'm going to go live in the wilderness and watch wolves and figure out how we're going to bring them back to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the Trinity Research Committee looked at that and laughed. And anyway, they assigned me to Andrew Jackson, who was a quantitative ecologist in Trinity. And uh, he said, he loved the energy, he loved the idea of the project. And he goes, but you're not going to Idaho to track wolves. That's ridiculous. Uh, so he, taught, he introduced me to a method called agent-based modeling, where you essentially build the environment into a computer, mm-hmm. and then you can run experiments on it. Mm-hmm. And that really opened my eyes to what's possible when you integrate ecology and computational ecology. Mm. So after the, the long road, I ended up computer programming and coding, but doing it for ecology. So that's, it all kind of blends together in the end. That's fascinating. Um, listen, so, so I, I'm, I'm infinitely interested in what you said about the building computer models uh, that reflect the environment. Um, how, so how, how'd you go, how'd you even start doing that? And, then how, 
accurate are those models or are there any way of validating the, the, the accuracy or, or whether these models are really modeling what you, they're supposed to? Yeah, so it's a method called agent-based modeling and it's been around since the 90s, but it's continually developing and getting better. Um, and to break it down to its nuts and bolts, it's essentially three computational components. So you've got agents, which would be me and you. Um, you'd have groups, which would be like a group, of, a group of people or a group of birds, and then you have the environment. And you can program these agents exactly how you like. So they can be completely arbitrary. They could be animal A. And if you're testing the predator-prey dynamic, you can put five animal A and one predator B and see how different populations affect the predator-prey dynamic. Or you can say predator B is a wolf and predator A are deer, and you can code in different aspects of their ecology mm -hmm. and see how the relationship plays out over time and space. That's what makes them so useful. They're spatially explicit. Right. Um, but in terms of calibration and model testing, I think they work best when you combine them with data from the field. So you go through, you do a literature search. Like I was doing a, I was coding an agent-based model a couple of weeks ago, and I had to find out how many grams of protein were in one ounce of mule deer milk. Yeah. So you have to go pretty deep into the literature to find these kind of weird stats. Um, or else you can combine it with a field experiment. So if you're running an experiment in Phoenix Park on deer movement ecology, Mm -hmm. and you know that they move this amount per day because you've done a three-year study, then you can code that in, and that's a far better way to calibrate your model. Yeah. But then there's other, there's other more advanced stats techniques like sensitivity analysis and approximate Bayesian computing that you can use to kind of guess the parameters and then refine them using machine learning and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So these, these will be like, a, like a, uh, features in the model that you're, that you're finding. Uh, to, for example, if, you're, if you want to model how the deer behaves. Uh, you need to figure out what are the, the, the parameters because there's obviously environment and where they can go. And then when, you know, where like Phoenix Park, there is a city nearby that obviously affects the deer. And so how do you, how do you figuring out how many of those parameters? Because surely you need, you need to decide that, okay, these, these particular features or parameters, they're not relevant for, for my model, right? Yeah, you'll kind of figure that out as you're building the model and as you're testing it. Mm -hmm. um, so initially, I write down what I'd like the model to look like on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And then I build that into the environment. And then you can either add or shed different parameters that aren't useful. Oh. But what I'm doing now at the moment with the model that I'm building is... So my undergrad thesis was a very basic because it was completely theoretical. Mm -hmm. um, it was all if-then computer statements. So if wolf is hungry, then wolf hunts. So it's kind of uh, sequential. and yeah. Although you can, you can get some cool information and there is a bit of randomness involved, you, you kind of know the results of the model after you build it. And you're kind of hoping that you get those results. Mm -hmm. So it's not very scientific. But what I'm doing at the moment is I'm building... So each agent has an internal model. Mm -hmm. So when you walk outside your house, you view your environment and you take that data in and you decide what you're going to do based on what you can see. Mm -hmm. So in my original model, my wolf model, um, Wolf was hungry, so Wolf had to go find food. That was basically it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I'm building machine learning models, such as like Q-learning algorithms and more uh, basic machine learning models inside the agents. So they can take data in, make choices, save the outcome of that choice as a success or a failure. And then the next time they get that same data, they know which worked better. And then they can make choices. Okay, based it's on kind of like reinforcement learning. Yeah. 
So it's a, it's a lot more accurate, and I think it's kind of the future of agent-based modeling. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. uh, yeah. Okay, I, I need to be careful to not go into deep into, into machine learning and stuff, because that's I know, I know, I know. For, for, <laughs> and people who are listening, they say, what the hell are they talking about? So, so we have, so this is quantitative ecology, right? So I don't want to put the words in your, in your mouth. Uh, so maybe explain quantitative ecology. So this is essentially, yeah, no, I'm not going to say anything. I, I leave it up to you. Yeah. Quantitative ecology is basically using uh, lots of data, uh, statistical models, and computational methods to answer your questions in ecology. So rather than going out into the field and collecting data and like and being wolves in Idaho. Exactly, yeah. You're using data. Now you can pair up with field ecologists, which is often the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're more interested in the modeling and the data analysis and all that kind of side of it, kind of back end of science. Yeah. And listen, how, how, uh, well, maybe established is the wrong word, but, um, over time, do you have any information, any data, how much those predictions and those models are, um, really predicted or worked out, uh, compared to what happened in, in reality? So what's the, what's the accuracy of, of modeling? Um, well, I'm sure you know yourself working in AI, you kind of split your data 70-30 into training and testing. So you train your data until you have, until you get all the right things what you're looking for from the model. So like your distribution and your, all that, like you're looking at your model results. Um, and then you test it on your testing data to see how it applies to data it hasn't seen before. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty accurate and we don't tend to put anything out into the world that we're not 100% confident in mm-hmm. um, because it has our name yeah, on it. Yeah, but what I, what I meant is like, were there any examples of, uh, let's say, you know, I'm making that up now, uh, the quantitative ecology in the models, uh, for example, say like, well, we're going to reintroduce a big predator into this area and they all going to be fine and going to regulate you know, ecosystem and it will be great and all the sheep and, and, and dogs are safe. And then the predators are introduced and it turns out that the first thing they do, they hammer all the sheep and dogs and not touching any deer who run fat. For example, right? I'm making that example out, but yeah, yeah. are there any like a real world cases where uh, those types of models worked and, and there, there, there are positive uh, outcomes or, or maybe some, you know, because I'm sure there's a lot of uh, criticisms around these, this methodology, uh, especially from people who are not uh, that deep into technology saying like, oh, you never can model a uh, natural environment. It's too complex and it's too this and too that and it's never going to work. Well, I think you saw that with the COVID modeling. Um, which I thought was really interesting. There was a thing called the, I can't remember, I think it's the profits problem or something like that, whereby the models are incredibly accurate and the techniques are pretty robust and like we know how to do them. We're trained pretty well as scientists how to do these models. But with COVID, the, the forecasts were pretty spot on and then everyone started tearing the models to shreds because we locked down as a result of that forecast. And that changed the model predictions because obviously if our behavior is different, then the parameters are different and the outcome is different. So everyone locked down, the cases flattened out as they were expected to. And everyone was like, oh, well, we didn't see that exponential curve that everyone was talking about. Yeah. So that's one example of how models are pretty accurate. 
Um, and then we know with species reintroduction is a huge problem and it's a big, uh, big challenge in terms of modeling. Because if, like, what we're doing at the moment in UCD with the Smart Air project is we're taking historical data from Ireland, we're taking current stakeholder knowledge, we're building models off that, we're going to make our predictions, and then we can actually test those in real time. Because deer have been there, people know where the deer are, and then the models will tell us where the deer are. So we can actually test that. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, if you were talking about introducing a wolf to Ireland, you can take data from Italy or Germany or France, you can model all, you can use species distribution modeling to figure out what kind of environmental parameters they like, such as south facing slopes or this type of soil or this type of woodland. But it's completely arbitrary because when you put that into Ireland, you've no idea. Wolves are so adaptive, most predators are. You've no idea how they're going to react on the ground in Ireland. Mm, that's what I'm saying. So you, you, you could model in Scotland or in France. We have X amount of deer density. Uh, we have X amount of distance to farms, we have X woodland uh, density, and we have X amount of mountainous terrain. How are wolves going to do? And then you apply that to Ireland and you adjust the parameters for Ireland, but wolves could take off and be in the Phoenix Park. Like it's, it's, wolves are so adaptive, you don't know when and where they're going to go, and modeling them is quite difficult unless you have very accurate data and data input. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what you're saying is essentially... Uh, the, the, the data that you can get from other areas might not reflect the situation in, in a particular exactly, yeah. ecosystem that you're trying to model in this case, Ireland. Yeah, well, you can reflect the ecosystem quite well, but in terms of paws on the ground, it's very difficult to uh, model where, the, where they're going to go. Yeah. Okay, listen, so we're, 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 we weighed in already into wolf reintroduction into Ireland, so, so let's talk about that. Um, has been any modeling done uh, on that? So as far as I know, the only two projects done on that, and I'll say now as a signatory to the Bern Convention and the Habitats Directive, there's two stipulations in those EU, EU uh, directives. Let's say where species have been eradicated due to human cause, uh, nations are obliged to research and study potential reintroduction of those species. So Ireland is legally, under the EU, bound to do, the, to do this research on lynx, boar, bear, wolf, everything. Yeah. But we just don't. Um, so as far as I know, and I could be wrong here, so I'm going to preface that quite strongly. Mm-hmm. The only research I know that's been done on wolf reintroduction in Ireland is my undergrad thesis project, which was talking about wolf management and conflict resolution and how that applies to wolf reintroduction. Mm-hmm. And then a project by Louis O'Neill in 2004, and I actually have his thesis in my room, so I used it for my own thesis. And he did a full biological viability study on the uh, wolf reintroduction environment. Right. And, and so, so can, you, can you share uh, findings from, from, from this work, how, 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 how this would work and what, what guys so, you put out? I've kind of flogged this topic to death and I've bounced around it for the last geez, five years, maybe. I used to think wolf reintroduction in Ireland was absolutely essential. It, was, it needed to be done and it needed to be done today. Just ship them in, get them on, and they'll be fine. Cut them loose. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, but the more you learn, and I think most importantly, the more you expose yourself to Ireland's ecology and culture and socio-political landscape, the more you kind of realize wolf reintroduction will be 
a, a capstone on top of a lot of ecological regeneration. Yeah. So one thing that I discussed with John Rochford a lot was um, we have all these mountainous regions in Ireland. And if you drive by them, they're bare. There's some heather, there's some like grasses and some sedges, but it's essentially bare. If you go down the M7 motorway towards the south, sorry, the M8, M7, M8 motorway, and you look left and right, we've loads of forest, but it's all coniferous plantations. Mm. And if you've walked through those, it's like yeah. walking through a graveyard. It's yeah. these silent, bare forest floor. It's horrible. I worked as an ecologist for Tobin Consultant Engineers for about a year and a half mm-hmm. after I finished college and before I connected with Simone in UCD. Mm-hmm. And that was a real eye-opener. Just we were so they're building a pipeline from Shannon to Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty big project. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. And our job was to walk that pipeline, to mm-hmm. walk the route that they proposed to do, and just walking through what Ireland's pristine nature was a real eye opener for me. Yeah. I saw like we just our our connection with nature is so disrupted and so false. Yeah, um, and I don't think it's anyone's fault. A lot of people are quick to blame the farmers, but I don't think it's the farmers' fault at all. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of farmers are pretty headstrong but not caring about nature but when I'm, we met so many farmers along that route and a lot of people are party to nature and they enjoy it and they enjoy seeing the wildlife in their area mm-hmm. but they're just not compensated in a way to do high nature value farming yeah so one proposition and I know it's pretty controversial is to eradicate sheep farming mm-hmm. because a lot of people have these sheep up on the hills. They get paid through a scheme, keep sheep on the hills. Mm-hmm. Sheep overgraze, they're up there all year. And then the sheep farming isn't even productive in terms of economic value. If, you, yeah. if they didn't have the compensation, they wouldn't be earning money. I, I know, 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 I know one, one sheep farmer, he'll, he'll, he's hill farming sheep. And uh, he said to me, like, the, the, if you want to make a million on sheep farming, you need to have 10 million first. Yeah. It's, so it's, I know this is, it's a very controversial thing to say, um, but if you swapped out using CAP, mm-hmm. common agricultural policy, if you swapped out subsidies for holding sheep and instead had subsidies for forest regeneration and uh, like pond building and all these kind of ecological restoration projects, then you could begin to talk about having a beaver back in. And then eventually, once you've got this huge scape of wilderness, you could talk about having links and you can see how they fare. Mm-hmm. And then over a 20-year period where you kind of make all these small changes to the environment and then you start changing public perception, people start going for walks in these massive uh, deciduous woodlands and they see little bits of nature. Mm-hmm. Then you could talk about having potentially wolves back into an environment. Yeah. Because we have the landscape. Wolves don't need it's, – it's a pretty – common misconception that wolves need the entire island of Ireland just to roam. Hmm. Wolves can persist in an area of 20 kilometers squared, which is pretty small, yeah, as long as they have enough prey. But at the moment, we have golden eagles up in Donegal that don't have enough prey because our landscape is just so morphed from what it was. Yeah. So there's a lot of factors to consider, and I know wolves are kind of like the sexy subject to debate, yeah. but... Uh, but for me, I'd like to work. Repeat to happen before before they can be reintroduced. So essentially, yeah, it, essentially, it'd be like going back to the Middle Ages and handing someone an iPhone, and they'd be like, "Oh, this is class." There's no network. The iPhone's completely unsupported. It'd be kind of useless back then. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And listen, just a, just a quick one. Your your uh, mentioned number of species. What's your view on uh, wild boar? Reintroduction of wild boar. And if it's like a long winded, okay. Let's uh, no. I'm just because I want to continue on the subject what you said, but just just like, like a little segue about the wild boar because you mentioned beaver, beaver and lynx and wolves, but you didn't mention wild boar. Is it anything? We already we already have wild boar running around the place. That's the, that's the reality. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they, like they're, wild boar are pretty destructive when they're not uh, looked after in terms of predators. Like if you look at Canada, Canada has huge problems now with wild pigs. Um, and I worked in an animal sanctuary after my leaving sir, and we had wild boar there. And they're fairly intimidating creatures when you meet them. Um, but no one has really noticed them unless they're in direct contact with them. So that's kind of a good indicator, but I know that it's people releasing them so they can shoot them is the reason. But then wild boar breed at a rate of knots, so they quickly yeah, they're they're quite uh, you know aggressive when in, in terms of expansive, I guess that's a, that's a probably the better expansive, yeah. Uh, in in terms of uh, litter and they they can lit the sauce can litter like a, two times a year and. and this, this. So, yeah. are you are you saying that we essentially will have a wild boar across the island anyway because they already out and once they're out, there's you know once the genie out of the bottle, there's you know no coming back. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how prolific they are in Ireland at the moment. Mm -hmm. But as far as my understanding is that they're already in certain woodlands and they're kind of persisting long term. So I would imagine if we kind of expanded habitats and I know sure Quilcher have just announced the Dublin Mountain Plan. Mm -hmm. So if we have that kind of natural regeneration over time, I think wild boar will kind of naturally persist and move into these areas. Okay. Because initially I was under the impression that you're gonna say that like once we re rebuild the ecosystems, once we rebuild the uh, nature and, and uh, landscape really and reintroduce wolf. Now once we have wolf then we can put the boar in uh, because then they can be controlled by wolf. Uh, so that was I would my that was what I thought you were gonna say, but it's like no, wild boar is yeah. over there. See, you've you've got this paradox, and it's it's globally, but it's especially bad in Ireland, I think, because mm -hmm. the the divide between Dublin, especially as an area, and the rest of the country is so broad. So if you go into Trinity College and you go, what do you think about wolf reintroduction? They're like, oh my god, it's we have to do it. It's our like it, we're honor bound to do it. And if you'd asked me, it would have been me as well. And then you go down to a farmer and you listen and their points are so valid. Like they, they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So we need to bridge that divide. We need to like invest in education. We need to invest in restoration. And then mm -hmm. like you can't just rush to the finish line. You have to take each step in the journey seriously. You have to invest in it if that's what we want. And I know there's a lot of talk about it at the moment, but Ireland's a great place for talking and not a great place for uh, practical <laughs> contribution. Uh, listen, uh, yes, you're, you're right. And do, do you think this is, this is uh, um, I mean, how, how serious that issue is uh, that you just mentioned? That, that, um, because, you know, on one hand, I'm thinking about the fans, like, on one hand, I understand I'm, a, I'm kind of, on that group, like yeah, people in in uh, cities, right, in Dublin, and, and, and who who never really seen the wildlife, 
they have a strong opinions, right? They have a strong opinions about hunting. Yeah. They have a strong opinions about reintroduction of species and, and so on, right? Uh, having very little knowledge and contact with them. Then you have farmers who also have um, somehow limited view, and this is understandable because they're living in there, right? And I always say that, yeah. you know, you can, you can, if you're living in a, um, and you see, I, I don't, I really don't like to um, dig that divide between all oh, people in a city, people in the countryside. I, I don't want to do that because there are people like a city people, city mindset people who live in the countryside. And there are people who know good and well uh, the reality of living in the countryside who are living in, in a city because that's where they work and so on. So I yeah, yeah. don't want to come from the perspective that I'm, that I'm digging a divide. But there is, you know, my thinking is like, a, a, a cut lady in Dublin who screams about the reintroduction of wolves, once that wolf will, will tear apart her cat, her view would change, <laughs> right? Yeah and, yeah, yeah. and this is it. Like, uh, it's easy for someone to say, like, oh, you know, those farmers, you know, one sheep gets killed and they're crying. Yeah, but it's not your sheep. It's not your... You know, yeah. and I'm, I'm always saying like, well, imagine you working on the presentation for your boss, right? On your PowerPoint, the whole week, you're doing something, you're, you're trying to make it work. And there is a big day, big presentation to your investors and so on. And you come in and it's all deleted and your computer is shredded apart, right? Would you be pissed off? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. equivalent what happens to a farmer who is rearing a sheep or, yeah. or cattle and all of a sudden gone. Right? Oh, because wolf needs to yes. live too. And, um, and this is why that, that whole history can, can, came in. And, and then you mentioned about education. And, and what I noticed is that the moment you mention education, both parties are kind of uh, offended. Like, oh, they want to educate us and they have no idea about like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you see how how it is possible how even to start to kind of trying to find a common ground and a common language and trying to both groups to understand where the other one is coming from i don't know to be honest it's because it's such different worlds and it is someone who spends nine to five in an office will just it'll be very difficult to understand a farmer's life because a farmer's life is a tough life they're up at five in the morning to milk cows and they're out there till six or seven in the evening. All to, huh? I was saying it's super tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought my internet connection dropped. Yeah. Um, so I think RT are on a show at the moment that my mom absolutely loves called Kids in the Village. And they take kids from the inner city and put them on a farm. And that kind of thing is hilarious, but it's not realistic in terms of the wide public. Um, so I think the best way in terms of education is to open up our landscape again, to regenerate, like what Quilcher are doing in terms of forestry generation. Mm -hmm. um, I went for a walk in Wicklow National Park, Wicklow Mountain National Park over Christmas. Mm -hmm. And we were coming up um, a hill and the place was bare. It had been, all the trees had been chopped down. There was tire tracks all over the place. Like that's our national park. So if that's your one experience with nature a week and it's chopped down trees and tire marks, mm -hmm. you'll just, you're not going to have a deep appreciation for it. Whereas if you're walking through an ancient oak woodland and you see a red squirrel run in front of you and you see a buzzer flying overhead and mm -hmm. 
you see a badger set, then you kind of start to connect with it a bit more and you start to get excited about it. And then you'll have just a bit more cop on in terms of what nature is. Mm-hmm. And then I think early teaching in schools is another thing you can do. I did ag science. I think that was one of the best subjects in the Leaving Cert, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how to do it, to be honest. It'd be a tricky thing to do. Um, and obviously not everyone is as interested or on board, so that's another problem. Yeah, but you're saying so. But you're saying that we're that Ireland is really obliged under EU to do the research. But there's it's only obligation is to do the research. It's not like try to restore anything or or introduce, right? Well, I think you need to figure out the root cause. And in terms of us, it was Oliver Cromwell, mm-hmm. which yeah, I wrote extensively with my thesis. It's not the first time on this podcast when that statement. <laughs> And my thesis supervisor said, get less patriotic and more scientific. <laughs> um, so I had to scale it back and I had to kind of balance the view out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was Cromwell, the bastard. Yeah. Um, who, because uh, the, the native Irish had, we were pretty in tune with nature and ecology. Now we weren't going out there and hugging wolves, but we, we built ring forts and we hunted wolves and we made sure they were in check. But there was never like a broad scale like idea to eradicate them. Mm-hmm. And then Cromwell came in and in 1653, he issued a decree. Well, the, the decree was, I'm not sure if that's the right date. Don't quote me on that. But uh, he issued a decree that said, Ireland will never be a civilized land until we get rid of the woods and the wolves. <sighs> so uh, in order for us to be civilized, we, uh, we chopped down all our trees and we killed all the wolves. Uh-huh. Now we're and that, that, event i believe anyway really was a turning point in ireland's landscape ecology and our socio-culture towards ecology how we view ecology because all of a sudden uh, these iconic animals became pests and everything that supported that ecosystem became pests and it was all about development mm-hmm. and we won't talk about the afters and what happened after that but. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay but so on your in your view is the you know, I'm 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 careful to, but there's no way around to not use the word rewilding. And I good, know good and well that this is like controversial term, but you know maybe restoration of nature is is that something that um, gonna happen in the next ten years, let's say in Ireland? How do you how do you think? What do you think? Is it going in the in in the direction? Is it moving in the direction that? we have uh, any chance of actually talking about wolves and lynx in the next 10 years or do you think is n- no way? Well, I think so the project I'm working on at the moment with Simone Ciuti uh, in UCD, we're in 2020 now, Just check the watch for the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we're in, we're in 2020 and we're currently working on the first project to set a scientific baseline for deer management in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So, We've, we've had deer since the Middle Ages, and we are only now working to figure out where they are, how many there are, what kind of landscape they like. And I think every kind of time I delve into a new project, it opened my eyes a little bit more in terms of ecology in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And this project, because we're speaking to everybody, we're speaking to so many stakeholders, it is eye-opening because I connected with Simone after I finished my undergrad degree. Uh, we had a field trip down in Glendalough and I was chatting to one of the PhDs in Trinity 
and he was basically detailing the life of a PhD and I was like, oh, well, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I emailed every university lecturer in Britain and Ireland. And Simone got back to me and said, I'm swamped at the moment, which is pretty on brand for him. And uh, he said, contact me in July. So I met him in July and we were chatting back and forth. And he, had, he did a postdoc in North Dakota, sorry, in Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. But they were working with the government in North Dakota mm-hmm. on mule deer and energy development, so oil and gas plantations. And he had a project that he didn't have time to finish on uh, mule deer, coyote, and oil and gas, and how they all affect each other. Mm-hmm. And he was like, look, you can finish this project while you're working in Tobin, so you can kind of keep your scientific skills up, and then we can uh, talk about getting into UCD. So working on that project, we had a data set from 1962 to 2012, 50 years of systematic data collection, where the mule deer were, where the coyotes were, where the oil and gas were, the weather, like the amount of, like it was just a ridiculous data set. And then we come to the project I'm doing now, which is pretty similar in that we're trying to uh, estimate species abundance in Ireland and density, and then realize the causal factors that drive them to certain landscapes and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So looking at the difference between North America and Ireland, in terms of how they view their wildlife, it's opposite ends of the spectrum. So Ireland needs to really have an attitude shift in how we invest in our wildlife. And like we can talk about lynx and wolves and bears, but if we don't manage and invest in the wildlife we have right now and we perfect that model, then there's no point throwing more variables into the mix that will only complicate things and piss people off. Huh. Uh, you know, I, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head here that, that we need to kind of stabilize the system that we already have with the variables that we already have before, yeah. we, before we start throwing more, more stuff in. Um, and I think this is like a good pivot into, into deer. And uh, again, the issue that I was uh, uh, talking about on this podcast with various people many, many times that we don't know what's the deal with deer in Ireland? How many yeah. we have and, and, and so on. And um, that was to me um, quite um, puzzling really. Uh, by the way, are you, do, you, are, do you hunt? Are you a hunter? No, but uh, I'd like to get into it eventually. Oh, uh, right. It's definitely okay. something I'd like to do. All right, we can, we can talk about that as well. We can talk about okay. that as well. Um, so, you know, the, the one thing that I always say that when you go on a, on a training course for hunters, which is, which is now mandatory in Ireland, finally, yeah. first-time applicants are required to, to complete a course. The first thing they're going to tell you on that course is uh, you need to assess the population before you do a call plan and you, and you know how many deer you can remove and whatever. You need to do the assess the population and this is the month to assess the population and so on and so forth. That's the first thing they're going to tell you. And the next day they're going to tell you is like, oh, because hunters are not calling enough females. They, you need to call females. Everybody wants antlers, but you're not calling enough females. And then, okay, but how many deer is in Ireland? Uh, we don't know. Nobody knows, yeah. right? So it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Is it, is it not just uh, exactly against everything that you just said, right? You said that you need to assess the yeah, population. Yeah. Then you're saying, making statements as if you already know. And then it turns out that you, 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 don't, you don't know, really. Uh, there's, there's no yeah. deer census nor anything like that. So, so please tell us uh, about that work uh, that you do and, and 
you know, when can we actually have some results and know what's the, de what's the deal with, with deer? Or maybe you can share some preliminary results already with us. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember after I finished my wolf project in final year, I went to Andrew and I said, I want to continue this research. I want to keep working with wolves. Mm -hmm. And he goes, look, I know you love the wolves, but take a step back and look at like everything. He's like, there's only wolves in a certain amount of countries and everyone wants to work on the big predators. He's like, don't work on wolves, work on deer because deer are absolutely everywhere and people know very little about them. Mm -hmm. And Simone's speciality, Dr. Simone Sayudi in UCD, that's his speciality. He's worked on deer in Canada, North America, France, Germany. He's worked like he's got such a plethora of knowledge on deer. And we've kind of built this lab based on wildlife behavior and ecology, but a big aspect of his deer. So we've got all these young people who are interested in deer with Simone on top. And it's just a great ecosystem for knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing at the moment, which I think is really important, because you can talk about wolves and deer and bears, but the bottom of the pyramid is the landscape in terms of environmental variables. But the next one up is prey and the deer population. So you, there's absolutely no realistic conversation about wolves at the moment because we have no idea what's going on with our deer. <laughs> and people are, so, people are so happy to just jump over that fact. Like, oh, I'll figure out the deer. Or the wolves will control the deer. But we might need control. We might have a declining population or we might have a steadily increase. We have no idea at the moment. So our project, um, which is funded by the Department of Agriculture, um, is called Smart Deer. We are setting a scientific baseline for deer management in Ireland. We're not going to do the managing. We have no political alignment. We have no aspiration to do that. We want to give people the tools to make smart management choices. That's what our plan is. Mm -hmm. So we kind of break our plan down to three different stages. We are... First of all, getting in touch with everyone in Ireland, because a big problem with Ireland is we have no national deer monitoring scheme. Yeah. And there's been several attempts to do that in the past, but it hasn't been successful. So Quilcha collect deer data. The national Parks and Wildlife collect deer data. Tommy, who owns a forest in Wicklow, collects deer data. Uh, but you can also, Tommy manages plot A in Wicklow and Killian manages plot B we can manage deer completely differently. Tommy might love deer and he loves seeing them on his land and Killian might shoot every single one he sees. Mm -hmm. There's no consensus on how we manage or view our deer. Exactly. So none of us have 40 years of experience in deer management in Ireland. So our first plan was to reach out to everybody who was involved in deer management, talk to them, understand their views and see if they have data that they'd like to contribute to the project. Mm -hmm. So our plan was to hold this national workshop in March, but that kind of got screwed by the COVID thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the worst thing because it kind of made us go, our plan was to pitch the project to a big group of people um, and then show them what we can do. But rather than that happening, we actually had to go and talk to people individually and they showed us what they can do, which kind of updated our education a lot. Um, so we're still very much in phase one of talking to people and getting their data. Um, and then we're also developing a smartphone application for foresters and hunters and outdoors people so that they can conduct deer surveys when they're out and about. Yeah. And the important thing is there's apps like iNaturalist and uh, other things like that, where if you see five deer, you just put in five deer. Whereas we are introducing a density metric as well. So you have to say, I walk this route in two hours. Mm -hmm. So you see X amount of deer in X amount of time. So you can get an estimate of density as well. Uh -huh. So that's phase one. Phase two, uh, the project kind of splits in half. We're creating 
a data library. So we're taking all that data from everybody who's agreed to join the project. Mm -hmm. We're creating a universal data library on all the deer collected in Ireland and adding in the smartphone app uh, deer data. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to model the data. So that'll tell us where and why deer are in Ireland. And then the third phase is dissemination education. So we're going to tell everyone our results. We're very about open science. We want to, it's no point conducting all this research and then keeping it locked behind peer review. Yeah. So we're going to tell everyone widely and we're going to give everyone the tools to make informed management decisions on deer in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you guys in, uh, engaged with any, any hunters organizations in, in Ireland? Yeah, as well? yeah, yeah. We've been involved uh, with FACE and Liam Nolan and we've, we've pretty much car uh, reached out to a lot of hunting communities. We've got in touch with the big organizations and we've got in touch with uh, smaller commercial companies. Mm -hmm. um, we've updated, like we have a fairly good idea on how hunting in Ireland works now. We've also got a pretty good idea on the poaching situation, which is a massive issue. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we're we're constantly learning. Um, what are the what are what are the what are the outcomes like? How the hunting works, and is is there any anything interesting there? I I'm not going to speak for the project. I'll speak for myself on how I think hunting works. I think hunting in Ireland could be done a lot better, personally. Mm -hmm. um, again, I look at the North American system with their tags. Really, like if you if you pull over a hunter in Ireland on the N11 motorway, and he's got a deer in the back, he could say, "Oh, my buddy shot the deer, and I'm just bringing him home for him." And you haven't a clue who shot the deer, if it was poached, if it was shot legally, if it was shot on illegal land or whatever. In America, you have tags. You have a deer, you have a tag. They come together, and that's how you keep track of everything. In Ireland, it seems a bit more loose, and people take advantage of that loose system. I think. Mm -hmm. It's also, I don't think that strongly enforced. So I think people take advantage of that too. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we have no idea on actual population densities and distribution. So our hunting system is essentially shooting in the dark because we don't exactly know the situation in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I, I, I agree with you. And, and again, that's not the first time on this podcast where... Uh, North American system is is being mentioned as a sort of a gold standard of you know how to do conservation yeah. and how to do wildlife management, and and I totally agree with you that um, you know as as much as I appreciate the opportunity uh, for you know to go hunt deer, like like you mentioned, there is there is a very little very little control, and um, I you know. I love the fact that I'm not advocating too much of the red tape to, to go into hunting, yeah. but at the same time where, you know, you go into a gun shop and you, and you hear two guys, you know, bragging, Oh, I heard, I shot 200 deer last year. Right. And you, and it makes you think it's like, okay, you either bullshitting or you really shot 200 deer. And like, how is this legal? Like how, how yeah, is it, yeah. like, what's the, what's the impact? Is it like was it like a young deer, old deer? You know what what's going on? And and you're yeah. right. It's it, it is legal in in fact because you're you have no bag limits, you have no quota, you have no uh, restriction on age class. It's just you know male, female, uh, open season, and off you go. So um, so I'm taking from well, you think... that you'll be in favor of having like a tag system and stuff like that. When you talk about hunting. 
the hunting community is really the third leg of the monster. There's the urban community, the farmers, and the hunting community kind of sits in the middle and it bridges the gap. I, lo- I love that you just said that. I, and, I can't, yeah. and I can't wait what you're going to say next. Please. So I think hunters have their own unique attitude and outlook towards wildlife. Um, and I think education there is as needed as anywhere else. And I know you were saying that people get offended. I think the hunters would be very offended if I said that. Um, but there's been research done in New York on hunter attitudes and education and the benefit of education on hunter attitudes because a lot of people will say uh, don't shoot females because you don't get a trophy and because it sustains the population but if a population is out of control then shooting females is a really important thing to do Um, and just going back to that North American model we're talking about investing in rewilding and conservation I think it's 20%, you might correct me on this, 20% of each outdoor gear bought in America goes into conservation and funding. Big Robertson Act. Yeah. So it funds wild landscapes. It funds diverse ecosystems and populations of wildlife. So that's a model we could also adapt because as more people decide to explore the outdoor community, mm-hmm. you can, Ireland loves taxing people. We get taxed for absolutely everything. So why not do a tax that gives back to the wildlife community? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's, you know, two, a couple of points on this. Um, I think that you're right, that, that hunters are kind of like in the middle, but majority of hunters are farmers as well. Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. So, so, so that's that thing. And again, another thing that I'm, I'm probably sound like a broken record here is that I feel like hunters are that link, like you said, in the middle that is, you know, and to some extent there's a a lot of opportunity, but on the other hand, um, they're kind of, you know, the, let's say, animal loving crowd in the city hate hunters because they're killing poor little furry babies, right? And, and hunters kind of, they're, they're, naturally leaning more towards farming sector because one like we said the majority of hunters are farmers number two uh well they hunting on the land that belongs to farmers right so yeah, so yeah, yeah. as a hunter i like to be in a in a you know in a good standing with all the farmers because ultimately i'm gonna knock to one of the farmers doors and say hey uh would you mind me to you know hunt deer on your land right so, uh, but I, I think, like you said, that the education may, and you know, when you say education, a lot of people think like, oh, now they're going to tell me, you know, how the deer looks like, right? But yeah, maybe yeah. that's an education, uh, just how to talk and how to bridge that gap. I, I, I feel like, you know, I am infinitely upset when uh, ecological organizations are, refusing to recognize the role of hunters and leverage hunters and hunting community for conservation purposes. Yeah. Um, you know, often only on the, on the, uh, ethical ground. Right. But these, these are the people who are really, and and we all know about the discussion about trophy hunting and all that. I I don't even want to get into, into that subject. Uh, but ultimately hunters are people who want you know, rich, diverse ecosystem who wants all those animals, who wants deer, who wants boar, who wants all these things being there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that where the opportunity lies is like them being also a farmers, they, they, 
they actually could have uh, the most knowledge, like underground knowledge about how things work and what would work, what would, wouldn't work for, you know, one, on one end uh, for, for farmers and for, on, the, on the other hand for, for conservation. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, well, going back to what you said earlier and the animal lover in the city who hates hunters because they shoot deer while they tuck into their to go on steak at night with uh, Exactly. So it's kind of, it's a complete oxymoron. Like it's, unless you're, hunting makes sense and it's, a, it's an ethical way to get your food because that animal's out there living its life in the wild and rather than die a slow death in a freezing Wicklow mountain, you're getting a clean kill. Yeah, um, exactly. That's, that, that's, that's the point. It's probably the best death that the animal could have being shot by a hunter. Otherwise, well, it's yeah. But Ireland's got a pretty good, as far as I'm concerned, not so, as, as far as I know, and you will be, be more knowledgeable, so you can uh, update me on this. We've got a pretty good governing bodies in Ireland with hunters. Like all hunters are pretty much, like they all, it's a good community of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if even grad students, and I know we'd love to do it, if you held uh, voluntary lectures, so you don't force hunters to go, but you held lectures, short things like on ecology, on uh, like our deer research, for example, I'm sure they'd be very interested to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, like hunters, as you said, they want rich, diverse ecosystems. So if they, if you force people to train, they probably won't want to. But if you held voluntary lectures biweekly or monthly, I'm sure that community would come, listen, exactly. maybe change their viewpoint, and we'd, oh, have, a, we'd have a more instinct. I know, I know hunters who are actually traveling long distances to go to every single training course. There is, and, and I'm one yeah. of those myself. You know, if I hear about some training course, whether it's about the, you know, deer or shooting or, or, or woodlands, I'm there because, because that's yeah. just interesting and, and, and people are interested in that. Listen, um, just to uh, finish it off, um, you also work, you also uh, researching, I guess, the deer in the disturbed landscapes, right? Yeah. And your, your handle is disturbed deer. Like, on, on, on yeah. deer. like tell us about that. What's, what's that uh, research about and, and what you're doing? What are the results? So that's, that's kind of going back to the North Dakota work that I'm doing. And okay. Because, yeah, that's a very disturbed landscape. It's not in Ireland. It's, it's more of a uh, North Dakota and a mule deer. Well, no, it's more because if you look at Ireland, Ireland's a disturbed environment. Ireland deer are not occupying the same landscape that they are known to occupy in Ireland since they came here. They either brought mm-hmm. or like red deer and carry where they naturally dispersed. Mm-hmm. But so I think I'm very interested and not just in deer, just in wildlife in general, how wildlife adapt to human disturbance and how humans can improve their management of wildlife so that we all coexist together mm-hmm. and humans and wildlife can have the best experience of the landscape. Yeah. Yeah, that brings me. That brings me back. That reminds me about the question I have uh, with relation to wolves, um, because there's an interesting point that was raised many times, and you even raised that today. That um, wolves are adoptable, and they can, you know, they can adopt to the, you know, a lot of situations. They don't need like a thousands upon thousands of square miles of wilderness to live. Um, I, I read an article and I think that's actually, you wrote that article about, uh, creating sort of, uh, restaurants for, for, for wolves. So they, 
So mm. essentially places where you feed wolves, uh, so they're not uh, predating on the livestock that much. And, and that uh, decreases the predation of the livestock at the same time still uh, leaves the wolves, let's say, and quotes, hungry enough. So they uh, essentially play their role in, it, in the ecosystem. And uh, that's, that's also a question I asked on, on, on the podcast. Is that the rewilding? Is that the wolves? And maybe, you know, in general, wolves are just an example, but in general, that's, a, that's an example. Do we want that, right? Because um, I understand, like, I'm talking a little bit from a selfish perspective, right? I want wilderness. I want wild wolves roam the wilderness and doing wolf things. Um, when I talk, when we start talking about wolves who are, you know, sneaking around the streets and have their, you know, restaurants here and there where we dump the carcass of the animal and they're kind of like, a, you know, becoming uh, urban wolves or semi-domesticated, you know, I'm not sure if I'm that interested in this kind of wolves and this kind of rewilding. Yeah. <clears throat> now that research, that was my undergrad thesis research. So I was looking at national parks and we used Cairngorms and Wicklow as just models, but it was kind of just landscapes in general. And it wasn't so much that people dump carcasses outside restaurants. The restaurant was kind of a, it was just a term we used. It was more mm -hmm. in, an, <clears throat> in a national park. If you know where a wolf den is, mm -hmm. you might put a dispensable cage. So like somewhere that a carcass can just appear overnight, basically like in Jurassic park with the goat. Mm -hmm. And then wolves know that there's a con because the biggest reason wolves disperse is lack of food. So they'll keep moving through the landscape until they find food. Yeah. So the idea for this was that they'd never be wanting for food, but that they would still hunt because it would only be, a, it wouldn't be an everyday occurrence. It would be like a once a week kind of occurrence. Mm -hmm. That research was very abstract, very theoretical. We found interesting results, but I think the main point you made is you don't want those kind of wolves, even if it was in a national park, you wouldn't want humans feeding wolves. But I think what you need to realize is there is no such, what is wild in 2020? Like, what is wild? So we've always managed predators, whether it be build fences or shoot them or stay away from them. We've always managed our relationship with predators since humans have interacted with predators. Yeah. So I think we need to look at Yes, we want wild animals. Yes, we want wild landscapes. But I don't think that's possible in 2020. It's only going to be these little islands that are heavily influenced by the sea of urban around them. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at if we want these things from our landscapes, what is the best way we can manage them so that they can exist in harmony and that we can ensure that they exist in the long term? Yeah, yeah. So well, the idea of wolf restaurants point. was just, yeah, we, it was we just one way of looking at like a, conflict like resolution. Wilderness that is that is uh, pristine, and the you know animals have a rain there. Is like the reality is, like you said, that we 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 have to manage whatever we decided to do. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at like everyone likes to point to Canada or New Zealand or America for these pristine wildernesses. But the only reason you're getting photos of these pristine wildernesses is because there's a walking track right behind it and there's people walking through it every single day. Mm. I've been to New Zealand, I've been to Canada, I've been in these pristine wildernesses and yes, they are beautiful, but they're also heavily impacted by humans one way or another. There's yeah. a car park two kilometers from that waterfall that everyone takes a photo of. Mm -hmm. So I don't think pristine wilderness 
exists in totality in 2020. Yeah. I think we need to manage the wilderness we have to ensure that humans can experience it. So I think it's, I think it's integral to the human experience that we get out and we see nature and we feel small in the universe because it's very easy to feel big when you're at your office desk typing a report. But when you're out, <laughs> like, uh, myself and my friend, we were up in the Canterbury High Mountains and we were walking through a woodland and we knew there was these massive boar. Mm-hmm. And we're 24 years old. And we picked up these sticks. And we were walking around with these nervous energy because we knew that a boar could run out and hit us in the side in seconds. And I think if you don't feel insecure and you don't feel small, then you're going to live your life with this bullshit ego and you, that you're more important than you are. Mm-hmm. And like, again, getting kind of philosophical in New Zealand, if you look up in the sky, you see this beautiful, because the human population is quite small there. Mm-hmm. You see this beautiful stars every single night the milky way and again you just start questioning your whole role in this thing and you feel small and i think that's the best feeling in the world personally yeah i agree i agree totally totally listen killian um we touch on on many things is there is there anything that we uh haven't discussed but you wish we did uh could have talked about martial arts we're talking about ego and feeling small in the world <laughs> yeah, is there is there any message you would like to leave choked. our listeners with? No, I think I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. It was a great chat, and um, I'd love to do it again if you have me on. The uh, same here, uh, Killian. Let let's let's stay in touch, and uh, sure, we're gonna talk about uh, get you into hunting, and uh, we're also gonna yeah, talk absolutely. about machine learning and stuff like that. Uh, but that's gonna be off the record. So thank you so much for your time, yeah. and I'm looking forward to chatting to you again. No worries. Thanks for having me on. I had a great time. Cheers. You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.